find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, episode four, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So our topic for today's episode is success. And what is Jesus's relationship with success? What is his definition of success? How does he see success? I think what we're going to discover as we plunge into this is that his idea of what success is is totally upending for our default settings, um, and that that's super important for us in our everyday life to come to understand how Jesus defines success, because we go through our lives feeling, wouldn't you say, Becky, generally unsuccessful? And by, by the way, this is, I'm Rick, and this is Becky, who's about to talk. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that we go through our lives kind of mostly feeling unsuccessful? Yeah, like, probably like 90%. <laughs> I kind of finished most of my projects this week. And were they kind of successful? They were kind of not very successful, depending on how yeah. you look at certain things. Does anyone ever feel like pristine success? Like, so we're we're near Denver, and uh, when we're recording this, it's the the day of the first NFL game of the season. So Denver is playing tonight, and they won the Super Bowl last year. But when you listen to even the players talk about it, so you can't be more successful than winning the Super Bowl, but kind of sort of the way they won it and the doubts about that team all last year, that you listen to the players and they're like always defending their success. Like, no, no, we were really successful. We won a world championship in football. (laughs) But even they don't feel kind of like this pristine success. They feel like they have to defend their success because it's not really legit. Well, and I think a lot of times we even feel like we have to defend our positions in life, right? You know, like we have to be like, well, look, I'm, I'm the, the marketing manager. I'm the, you know, this is what success looks like. I've made it. Oh, yeah. Or my, my wife's a stay-at-home mom. You have two oh, girls. She's a stay-at-home mom. So she is constantly, like every day, trying to figure out whether her life is successful mm-hmm. because so much of what she does is goes literally unnoticed by people in our home. I mean, I notice a lot of what she does, but our kids, not because they're bad people, they're just their kids. They don't, like my youngest daughter, Emma, will often say something like this at the dinner table. Mom, what did you do today? Kind of like that. Mm -hmm. Mom, what did you do today? And then when Bev describes what she did that day, it doesn't really meet Emma's 13-year-old standard for success. And yet, if Bev wasn't doing these things, our house would kind of fall apart. So Bev has to every day grapple with this issue of, am I, is what I'm doing, giving my life to successful? Is it a good use of me? Um, so we, we kind of have to wrestle with this whole idea. And when we slow down and pay attention to it, like we are right now, we figure out, huh, I don't know that I feel successful very often. <laughs> Even people who have jobs that are like meaningful to the world, we have a lot of friends who are in ministry and that's a meaningful job. And they also 
wrestle with this too. Uh, Even though yeah. what they do every day is um, is meaningful, they still wrestle with whether or not they're successful at that. So it's it's universal. I feel like that, yeah, this wrestling. Yeah, and so here's good news lurking underneath all of this. Jesus's definition of success destroys our definition of success, and Jesus's definition of su- success makes success accessible to anybody, no matter what the outside markers for success might look like. Jesus looks at it differently, and I can tell you from the get-go here that he makes success in life a lot more accessible than we do. So that's what we'd like to explore. But So uh, I know that you've been having some really profound, deep, searching, questioning conversations with a young, a younger friend of yours mm-hmm. who is kind of wrestling with all of this success stuff kind of at the start of their career trajectory or their, their life's impact trajectory, and they're thinking about what success looks like from that vantage point, the starting out vantage point, which is kind of a, a pristine vantage point where you, you feel I, some idealism about what's ahead of you and what, what's possible in your life. You're not anywhere close to the midlife crisis version of success, where you have this implosion about, have I really spent my life well? You're at the start of that trajectory and thinking through what will make my life a success. So why don't you talk a little bit about this conversation you've been having? So I really enjoy hanging out with younger people. It's just, I always have. I love that part um, where people are right out of high school and or up into their mid-20s, and like life is so hopeful. You know, it Everything is a possibility, and they're so excited about the possibilities of their life. So if you don't, if you don't know anybody in that age range, I encourage you go find someone and take them out to coffee because they're so much fun to listen to. Um, but this particular friend of mine um, is really wrestling right now with who am I, what is my purpose, where am I going in my life, and what will success look like? And we've just been on this. I, I wrote a post about um, why mindfulness wasn't making me happy, um, and my friend has been using mindfulness as a way to try and figure out who they are and what they should be doing. And so we've just been having this back and forth conversation for a few weeks now, and it's um, it's all kind of come down to two major things. And and it was the first one is um, I want to have an impact on the world, mm-hmm. and the second thing is. Um, I want to be the best person that I can possibly be, which is such a huge, huge goal for yourself. So uh, let's pause for a second. So uh, I love how you've distilled out of this conversation what this person is really after. So it makes perfect sense. And this is universal as well. We all want to make good impact in the world. We don't want to just make money because we all know that somehow— just making money, no matter what it is you're doing, doesn't really fulfill you. So we all want to make a good impact while we make enough money <laughs> at the same time. But impact is an important thing for all of us. And then being the best person I can be, nobody wants to think of themselves as a bad person. In fact, I just heard on uh, on NPR the other day, they, were, they did a, a research uh, study that was just produced about how how people who do bad things typically literally forget the bad things they've done, and they were trying to discover what are they just covering over them because they feel they feel bad about it, or it, do they literally forget them? And what they've discovered is in neuroscience is that people who do bad things literally forget some of the details 
around the bad thing they did because we are so hardwired to not like seeing ourselves in a bad light that even our brain compensates for that by by helping us forget the bad things we've done so that we can continue to believe what a good person we are because we all have this fundamental desire to think of ourselves as being a good person, the best person we can be. Mm-hmm. So those are two really strong drivers. The problem is that you get a little bit further into your 30s, <laughs> and then and then you realize that if it is impossible to set an expectation that you're going to be the best person that you can possibly mm. be, because you're going to fail, and um, and that's the design. That's actual. That's it's the actual design. We're going to fail because when we fail, Jesus is going to show Himself to us, and in in our weakness, He is strong, and so. Um, it's just a really hard thing to put yourself into and say, "I'm basically you're saying I'm just never going to fail. Mm. I'm I'm mm. going to be perfect. I'm going to achieve everything I want to achieve on my own." Yeah, it, it it lays out there an impossible standard, and if you build yourself on that, like you said, for sure it's going to topple. That's why people hide so much. They hide in the darkness. They or they're posers because they're covering over the reality of their life with the veneer of their life, the veneer that they hope to be. So they cover over the stuff in the darkness, and that's when things really start to fall apart. So if you build your life on, uh, I want to be the best person I can be, well, you know, that it sounds fine. Um, what, who wouldn't want to be the best person you can be? But how do you get there? And I, I think we're he- you hear all around us and all around the culture. There are ways to get there that are almost like formulas. Just lock into my formula, mm-hmm. and you'll find a way to be the best person you can be. You'll find success if you lock into my—you see it in the church, the kind of the health and wealth gospel that underline it says, if you do this right, you can leverage out of God what is yours in the first place, and you can find the success. It's there for you. Just grab it. If you'll just grab it the right way, you can get it. And that's exactly what my friend has fallen into is these success experts. Um, And we actually thought that it would be good to um, share some of the quotes from some of these um, success experts. This in in particular is um, Tony Robbins. He's very well known. Um, He has his his work has impacted. I think um, I heard four million people have attended one of his events and he's he's just very well known for helping people. Um, establish what success is in their life and mm-hmm. then help them achieve that um, achieve that success. So I wanted to read some of his famous quotes. Um, so here's one. The secret, and so this is, oh, bit, oh boy, here it is. This is the secret. He has figured it out. Um, the secret is learning how to use pain and pleasure instead of having pain and pleasure use you. If you do that, you're in control of your life. If you don't, then life completely controls you. Yeah, that. Why don't you do another one, and then we'll talk about some of the underlying threads here. So why don't you give us another one? So here's another one. Um, in essence, if we want to direct our lives, we must take control of our own consistent actions. It's not what we do once in a while that shapes our lives, but what we do consistently. Okay, so on the surface of it, eh, nothing wrong with that. No, it's it's taking control great. of your life. It's it's uh, it's helpful u- using pain and pleasure 
uh, and getting on top of that and letting it work for you instead of it break you down. And but there's a there's a subtle lie embedded in these kinds of statements, and uh, the and the fact that it's subtle is what hooks us. So the subtle lie is essentially, I'm in control. I can use things for my benefit, which is another form of control. Um, there's a formula. There's a formula. If I follow it correctly, I right. can get what I want. And if if look 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 at me, I'm doing it. And in fact, I can tell you some stories of other people who are doing it. So in our in our puny little human minds, we hear, "Hey, if somebody's doing it, that means anybody could do it. That maybe means I could do it." So the promise really is, "Hey, Tony Robbins is doing this, and he's helped oh, four million people have come to this thing." So probably some of those people would be glad to give a recommendation about how it works for them. So if it works for one person, or if it works for 12 people or 4 million people, maybe it could work for me. I just need to work the system, I need to work the formula. I need to do it right. I need to have enough perseverance and willpower to get this thing right. And then it will, you know, like a machine, spit out success for me. So he's embedding this idea that the pathway forward to success is really uh, all in the arena of control. You just need to take more control over the factors that lead to your success. And self-discipline. And we, I was talking about this particular um, subject on a different podcast this morning called They Say Podcast. It's for women. And so we were talking about um, these control programs as they relate to diet and exercise. And um, the thing is that they, they require enormous amounts of self-control. And um, we're, su- we're super good at that. From what I can see with human beings, we're super, super good at enormous amounts of self-control. No, we're not because it's actually, <laughs> it's a fruit of the spirit. So it's, it's a, it's a fruit from, from walking alongside Jesus. There's, it, it's an evidence of his work in our life. And so what... uh, that's not very American. What you just said, Becky, that, that you're, you're seeming, you're seeming to imply that self-control is a fruit of something that grows out of our attachment rather than something we produce. That's exactly what I'm saying. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm going to be... That's radical. I'm going to go hide now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's true. And and we are free from all of this. And and Paul talks a lot about control and, and wanting to control and not being able to and being frustrated with that. Um, but the, the problem is that we have to give up and give in and that, and, and then attach ourselves to Jesus. And then he gives us the self-discipline to do the things that he wants uh, yeah. us so, to do. So when he says, um, here's the reality, folks, you can't do anything apart from me. No, I mean it. No, you can't do Jack without, without being attached to me, without abiding in me. Here, let me give you an illustration. You are a branch, I'm a vine. If you stay in me, if you remain in me, it's a crazy thought. When's the last time you saw a branch eject itself from the from the trunk of a tree? But so Jesus is saying, if you branch, remain in me, and I will remain in you, and then you get my life going up through you, which will produce fruit, because it's really the life of the vine that produces the fruit through the branch. So he, he's saying, uh, guess what? This whole thing boils down to whether you stay remaining in me, abiding in me, attached to me, 
That's what all this comes down to, because your ideas about producing fruit on your own are ridiculous. That's essentially what he's saying. So this idea that we're in control and we can produce, it's very alluring, though. Like the uh, Earlier this week, I was walking around our neighborhood, and on one side of our neighborhood are some expensive homes, and we, so my, my wife Bev and I were walking past one of these homes, and they had a three-car garage, and all of the garage doors were open. And so we're walking the dog, and I look over there at the garage, and I, I had this thing just kind of wash over me as soon as I looked inside this guy's garage. So he had a Porsche, nice. a Jaguar, Double and nice. then in the third space, he had an Infiniti SUV. <laughs> and then just to the side of the Infiniti SUV was a pristine bike rack, that had places for like a dozen bikes and they had like seven bikes in the bike rack and they were locked. And then I looked at the garage floor and it was like pristine. It was one of those coated floors that you could eat off of. There was no kind of uh, garden tools, you know, kind of piled in a corner or anything. Everything was in its place and pristine. It kind of gives me hives on the back. Yeah. Well, I'm walking past this and here's the thought that goes through my head when I'm walking past this. Oh, that guy. That guy has it going. Whoever the guy is that did this, um, he, he has obviously an excellent job, so he's really on top of that. He's on top of his garage. His cars look like they just went through the car wash. They're all pristine. This guy has it dialed in. This guy is successful, and you're not, Rick, obviously. I mean, look at the huge chasm between the two of you <laughs> as you walk past his garage. Now, this is not about stuff or materialism or anything else. I know from experience in, in surveying, surveying Christian men that their top fear in life is that they're not enough, that whatever they have, it's not enough. And that's the very feeling I'm assaulted by when I walk past this garage. Whatever I have um, isn't enough to be successful. That guy has it dialed in. Obviously, financially, he's stable, and he's made all the right choices. I bet his kids are happier than mine. You know, all of that stuff comes flooding in in a moment, and it's tempting. It, it's really alluring to say, man, if I was just a better blank. Like, my, my wife's dad was a banker. He was a little suspect of me wanting to marry his daughter because I wanted to be in ministry. So that didn't really calculate for him. So um, he was always a little doubtful of me. So sometimes when I'm starting to feel a little shaky about myself and whether I'm very successful or not, I will say a snarky thing to my wife, like, maybe you should have married a hedge fund manager after all. As, you know, not only your dad would have been happy, but maybe you would have been happier too. But that's my own uh, you know, cowardly way of, of smoking out my fear inside, which is I'm not enough. So that's the feeling I had going past that garage. And that is all about, that, that's, that's why Tony Robbins can put that hook out there and it hooks people like me because he's saying, hey, buddy, there is a way. You, you see what that guy has? Well, you can have that too. You can be in control of that if you will just do these things. And I love what you said there. Uh, uh, if we want to direct our lives, we must take control of our consistent actions. It's not what we do once in a while that shapes our lives. It's what we do consistently. He's saying, you have the power in you. You can do this. And that's the allure. The problem, <clears throat> the problem with all of this really is that what does success really look like? And is the guy with the clean garage successful? 
Is that what it is? Is that what success actually looks like? And I think in America, we have a certain way that we view life and what we want out of life here on earth. And we define that and we say, that is what I'm going to achieve. I'm going to set out to do it. And the problem is that Jesus has a really different idea about what he wants us to do on earth and what he's going to call successful. Yeah. And here's where we can jump in to, let, let's just set the, the stage for paying ridiculous attention to him here. Let's look at three different encounters he had where he is defining success. So we're going to pay attention to what Jesus pays attention to here. We're going to pay attention to what Jesus pays attention to in these three stories and what he thinks is successful about these people. And let's let Jesus define success for us. We're going to explore it together here. So the first story is from Matthew 15, uh, and it's, I, I think, I, I'd have to say, this is my favorite story in all of the Bible. I mean, when I speak in the various uh, places that I speak, I almost always end up gravitationally pulled back to this story because it is maybe the the quintessential mud puddle story in the New Testament. By mud puddle, I mean we come up to it and we we think we know it, but we jump over it without really wallowing in it because we don't really understand what's going on here. This is what Jesus does here doesn't fit our definition of Jesus. So that's why I love it so much. So it's in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Here we go. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Well, Jesus did not answer a word. Hmm. So his disciples came to him and urged, uh, Jesus, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. So they're bothered by this. They want him to, to send her on her way. He answered, now he's saying this to the, to the woman, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, well, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Oh my gosh. That was mean. Uh, Here's Jesus not being Jesus the way we want Jesus to be. No. But he's so beyond our categories of love. So right here, he's loving this woman in a way we can't imagine. Um, so even though so so it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, and this to a woman who's been called a dog more times than she can count. Um, here's what she says. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Oh my gosh. Now here's like where her. Yeah, oh, she's fabulous. And Jesus reacts with exclamation points. <laughs> then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So this is one of those moments where Jesus is astonished by this woman's answer to him, and he's, he's delighted by her answer. He's delighted in her. And in her, he sees something that he wants to celebrate. So he does. His disciples, I can't imagine the whiplash they feel. So this woman uh, is a uh, marginalized person who you shouldn't even give a thought to, really, and she's bugging them. And she has a real need, but they're like, send her away. <laughs> and Jesus is also ignoring her, so he's acting as they would expect him to, because uh, she's not worth anything, so why wouldn't he ignore her? 
So he starts out by doing what they expect, and then she answers, and then he does what they never expect, which is, wow, woman, your daughter's healed right now. You have not just good faith, you have great faith. Wow. So let's talk about this for a second. What is it that Jesus sees in her that he loves? What is it that he sees in her that so much so that he's pointing to her as an example of success? So what is it? So first, of, the first thing I see is that she has a posture of humility. Hmm. And um, the Bible talks a lot about pride um, and how, how much God des- desires our humility in all things. Um, and I just see over and over again that she takes a posture of humility with him. And even when he insults her, she's not necessarily rude in her response back to him. She's still taking a posture of humility. So I picture this woman in response to him. He, he says, uh, what am I supposed to do, throw the bread to the dogs? I picture her jutting her chin out a little bit, mm-hmm. and her eyes get a little narrow. And she goes, yeah, but Jesus, even the dogs get the crumbs off the master's table. This is one determined woman. This is one woman who's not going to be deterred by another slight. This is one woman who's getting past the pain of her shame, and she's saying, yeah, whatever, Mm -hmm. but my daughter's sick, and I know you can do something about it. So we use this term, he, he says, you have great faith. Faith is another one of those words where we don't typically slow down and pay attention to what we actually mean when we say it. We most often mean it like a commodity, like a muscle you have or something, but really what matters is what you have faith in. So he's celebrating what she had faith in, and I think what he's celebrating the faith in is that she sees him for who he is. And she's confident. She she's not. She doesn't just recognize that he's Lord— she is confident that he is Lord. She's assured of it. Other people are maybe aren't even confident yet, maybe even his disciples, but she she displays confidence uh, yeah. in who he is. So and she's not she's not all over the top about it. Oh Lord, I knew what kind of a savior and messiah you are. She's direct. in a very calm way, direct way. Yeah, I know who you are. And I know you can do what I'm asking. So would you just do it? I think Jesus absolutely loves that kind of childlike, that's what it is really in the end, it's childlike determination based on what she knows about him. Mm -hmm. She's acting out of what she knows about his heart, and I think Jesus loves it when we see his heart and we act as if what we see is true. So what would that look like today? So this is why Jesus' definition of success is so accessible to anybody. Um, I think what it looks like is no matter whether the outward signs of success are there, because you and I both have said, wow, I'd be hard-pressed to point to exactly a successful thing today that I really want to celebrate. So, But what I can point to is, am I determined to see Jesus' heart well today and act out of that, even in the, even in the face of my lack of success? Even in the face of, hey, you didn't do that right, or, oh, that was a stupid decision, wasn't it? I can still fulfill Jesus's definition of success by looking him straight in the eye and saying, I do know who you are, and I'm not leaving. I I know what you can do, and I trust you. I think it's also confidence that he is in control 
even when life feels out of control. And he is in control is a is a phrase we use a lot, and sometimes I think we translate that to he's got a scripted plan that he's going to fashion us into. That's his control. But real, I think what we really mean when we say that is he is relentlessly bringing beauty out of ugly all the time. He he is relentlessly bringing beauty out of ugly because pretty much all we have ever offer him is ugly. But he is a great artist bringing beauty out of whatever we give to him. And in this case, um, this woman is basically channeling his own heart. She's 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 really acting like Jesus acts. This is exactly the heart of Jesus in her response. Oh yeah? Well, I know who you are, and I know what you can do. You just need to do it. And I'm not going anywhere until you do. There's a commitment level of that. I'm all in with you. I'm convinced about you. Maybe that's a way to say it. Can we go through our life, even today, acting as if we're convinced about Jesus? Yes. Yep. No, no matter what the outward signs of success I have. And I know that if I do that, he's pretty delighted in whatever he sees. Let's take a look at another story here. This is from Luke 7. Um, oh, this is a powerful story. Um, so this is Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Okay, number one, this woman is not supposed to be there. Normally speaking, she gets thrown out of the house immediately. She's, a, she, she's not only uninvited, she's undesirable. So that's what we know so far. As she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Well, of course, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, uh, he's saying this to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman that is, that she's a sinner. That's a formal definition of somebody who is not allowed in the temple for sure. She's formally been designated a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Okay, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, her precious tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let's ask the question again. What is it that Jesus loves about this woman? What is he pointing out about her that he loves? 
this had to have been such an emotional scene. Yeah. I have been in moments where I think that I, I have cried my tears in Jesus's feet. And it's always been because of something really tragic that happened in my life and just feeling really rotten. I, this woman must have been in so much despair in her heart. And the fact that she risked coming into a house where she would never have been allowed despite her despair because she was so desperate for relief and she knew that if she if she got to Jesus he would give it to her he he can't resist that kind of act there's him. there's a there's a wholeheartedness to this woman in this moment so we, we, you and I talked before about Brene Brown has a book called the gift the gifts of imperfection and the whole book is about her research into people who are wholehearted and her learning about what wholehearted people do and don't do. And it's such a profound word to use, because we all know people that we would say, that person's wholehearted. And I think what we mean by that is that they're not fruity, dangerous people like, oh, you don't want to start a conversation with that one, because you'll, you'll never get a word in or something like that. That's not really the wholehearted we're saying. We're saying that person lives with a kind of an openness and an all-inness they plunge into things. They're, they're not cautious people. And mostly the non-cautious people like this woman have reached a place of desperation and have experienced the love of Jesus at such a deep level that their filter is gone. All they can see is him and how grateful they are to him and how real his love is to them. And of course Jesus loves it when we're unfiltered before him. Of course he loves it when we are raw in our love for him and our response to him. And of course he loves it when we forget to be formal, but we're all over him. Of course he loves it when we're weeping out of gratitude for him and, and we forget that we're kissing feet. We forget that we're using our hair to wash his feet, which are dirty because of the dirt of, of their surroundings. There is something wholehearted about her and, and if you think about it, well, can I be wholehearted today? I think, I think I can do that, even in the midst of my failure. I also think he loves it when we risk going into uncomfortable places for him. Yeah. And that's, that's what she did. And, and that can be, you know, for some people that can be going into um, some sort of other country that they're uncomfortable with. Uh, we have friends who are living in dangerous territories for Jesus. But it also can just be in our own lives what are places where Jesus is calling you? And it's just that that place is uncomfortable. And he loves when people risk and trust him that much that they're willing to do that, to put their own needs aside. Yeah, you could say, I, I wrote a book a while back called Skin in the Game that was all about how in every encounter, Jesus actually surfaced risk in people. He loved it when they risked on his behalf because risk is goes hand in hand with wholeheartedness that you will risk for things that you're you're convinced about or you trust in. And all of us can risk a little bit on behalf of our love for Jesus every day. No matter what our outward signs of success are, Jesus sees that as a success. Let's just briefly touch on this one last one. This is from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Those are two little pennies. It's hardly anything. I think I looked this up once, it's like 175th of a denarii or something like that. It's just a pittance. So he said, uh, truly I say to you 
that this poor widow has put in more than everyone. For all of these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood she had. So again, what is he loving about this woman when he sees he no one else is noticing her. She's not doing anything special. In fact, she's doing something very unspecial. She's putting in probably the least amount that went into that pot that day, but Jesus is paying attention, and it's super important to pay attention to what Jesus pays attention to. So what does he see in her? She gave up that which, which would cost her something. Ah. It, it's, it's not about the amount of money that she gave. It actually cost her something. It, it probably hurt her in a certain way to give up that much. Which is... The truth is, if you're in a marriage relationship or a dating relationship, we all know that when we see somebody who sacrifices on behalf of us when they don't have to, that that is a deep expression of love and trust. It's, it's a profound statement about our value to that person, and I think he sees that in her. She goes all in, she risks, and she sacrifices, and he sees how treasured that is. And here's the beauty of this. It doesn't have to be a lot. It just has to be something that costs you. And anyone can give something that costs you. Um, because if you have nothing, anything costs you, <laughs> it, mm-hmm. like in the case of this woman. And, and it can be time. It can be money. It can be, um, any, any, it can be your gifts. It, you know, There's a lot of things that we have that are currency to Jesus that he wants to use from you to do something else in someone else's life. It's going to cost you something to yeah, use it. Yeah. So let's let's wrap this up by taking a look back on on. Now we're paying attention, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus and what He pays attention to. So what do we take away from this that that can help us in redefining what success is from Jesus' vantage point? So God is looking for great faith in people. He's looking. Um, for you to have a faith that is strong enough to stand up against scrutiny and temptation. Um, and that that comes from following him and listening to him daily. Um, some days I just say, Jesus, let's spend a day together. And we do. We went to Target the other day, um, and I just repeatedly asked him, what do I need? And we did it together, and he completely reminded me of everything I was looking for. And because I was was doing this, this um, intimate time with him, he prompted me, um, as I was leaving Target, um, there was a, um, a man with three young boys who had a sign that they were in financial trouble. And he, because I was already tuned in and listening to, listening to him, he was like, you're going back to Target. <laughs> and I spent $100 and filled up an entire cart with groceries and laundry detergent and all kinds of stuff for this family. And I would have just blasted by because if I had made my own to-do list that day, it would have been so full that I would not have had time to do that. Yeah, I love that story. And we know, based on the stories we just read, that in that, those moments, Jesus was delighted in your heart. And and it's important to point out something, I think, here. Um, faith in him, listening to him, responding to his nudge, doesn't come from a place of should— in your story or in these stories, it comes from a place of raw passion, of a, a, a de- not just a dependence, a desire, uh, but desire for him mm-hmm. that happens naturally. You don't have to work up no, desire. I want to do this for you. Yeah. Of course I want to do this you for you. You see his beauty, you taste his beauty when you say, spending time with him, 
um, whether that's in Scripture or in the way you did in Target, what it does is it just exposes us to His beauty. And when we're, when we're exposed to beauty, desire wells up in us, and that's, what, that, that's the momentum He loves to see in the stories we just read and in our own lives. So God is looking for ridiculous romance— and and it's not a it's not a trite thing that I'm saying right now. It's the foundation of all things. It, he's looking for not a robotic, uh, formulaic obedience. He wants lovers in the end. So he he wants us to come to him with whatever we've got and offer it to him, because we see him, and we're and we have tasted enough of him to have confidence in his heart. It's not so much that we're confident in our circumstantial security, like, he's, of course he's going to come through for me. What if you set that aside and say, the one thing I am confident about is his heart. I'm not confident about my circumstances, I'm not confident about whether my problems are going to go away, but I am confident about his heart. And that's where I think everything starts for us. Do we have confidence about the heart of Jesus? He wants everything that you have. Um, and I think a lot of people read this and think um, that he may be talking specifically about possessions. He's not asking you to sell everything, um, but he may be asking for more of your heart or more of your mind, more of your time, um, more of space in your home, your hospitality, the gifts that he's given you, um, the talents. Um, he wants you to offer it up to him and allow him um, to use those things to impact other people. Yeah, it's good. Well, so maybe to wrap it up... Um, Here's something that we could do this week that, uh, let's let's just say we're going to take three minutes to do this, so let's not make it a high bar, just take three minutes to scribble out what your real-life definition of success is. Like, if I were to be or do this, I could consider myself a success. I know I have things that pop into my head right away that are my categories of success, that, that it's like, if I could just get up to the top of that mountain— whatever that mountain is, then I'd be successful. The problem is there's a lot of people that have gotten to the tops of those mountains, and they get up there and they're like, oh, oh, well, this isn't at all what I thought it would. I don't actually feel fulfilled at all. I don't even feel successful at all. Hey, so I wish that those people at the top of the mountain could yell down to the people that are still working their way up, thinking there's something up there. I wish they could yell down and say, hey, wait a minute, there's nothing up here. <laughs> there's nothing up here. So th- rethink this. So why don't we try this week, we take three minutes and describe what our mountain of success looks like. What do we think success looks like? And then allow Jesus, just put it before him, like a little kid. Here, Jesus, here's what I've been thinking success is. I just need you to reorient me. Can you tell me what you think of success today for me? is, what would be successful for me today? And just wait for him to respond and, and kind of invite him to redefine success for you that day and see what he has to say. Well, thanks for listening. Also remember that you can find out more information about all the things that we talked about here today um, in further detail on JesusCenteredLife.com. Uh, find our podcast section and click on episode four. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Life Tree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and we'll talk to you next time. See you next time.